The old village shop back in Ireland was to be demolished. Time had moved on. I pushed open the creaking door for the last time and stood in silence, thinking of yesteryears. Was my mind playing tricks, or could I still get the smell of chicken meal, leather, fresh bread and paraffin oil, all blended with the homely whiff of smoked bacon which had hung from the now empty hand-forged hooks, still adorning the timber-sheeted ceiling? which was blackened with age. The ancient screen and counter at the back had served as the local post office, but was now shrouded in silence, while the old bentwood chair lay unused in the corner. No more was it the centre of news and local gossip on pension days, or the hub of life of a community gone forever. In those times the telephone was a rarity and the local postmistress was privy to many a choice nugget of news by somehow inadvertently overhearing a conversation on the manual exchange. The days of telegraph boys delivering secretive envelopes with messages of joy or more commonly some loss or tragedy were past. Stuck on a rusty nail, curling and yellowing with age, my eye rested on instructions for these very boys. How to use and take care of post office cycles. Rule 9. To sound the bell when close to anyone may startle the person and cause an accident. There were 21 rules in all. I glanced around for the last time, and it was then that I saw a strip of dark metal screwed and sunk into the countertop, a brass yardstick. Carefully I unscrewed this memento of those bygone days. Could I hear Mrs Chestnut, a farmer's wife of ample proportions, coming in for some ribbon for her Easter bonnet. Half a yard will be enough, please, Mrs Cross. Or perhaps a belt for her husband, Big John, a man of equally generous build. He, he needs a 44-inch one, at least. And then, an aside with a giggle, a dear knows, there's a lot of him these days. Carefully, Mrs. Cross, the postmistress and general factotum, measured the item out along the yardstick, but then added a bit extra. A luck penny. Always acceptable whether you believed in luck or not. Sadly, such village shops have now all but vanished, giving way to impersonal supermarkets or multinational chain convenience doors where rural mirth and manners are no more. As Oliver Goldsmith said in the deserted village, but times are altered, trades on feeling train usurp the land and dispossess the swain. 
Along the lawn where scattered hamlets rose, Unwieldy wealth and cumbrous pomp repose. Ill fares the land, to hastening ills a prey, Where wealth accumulates, and men decay. I took the yardstick home and it polished up so beautifully. It is still cherished, and indeed, I believe we may all learn a lesson from this old relic. At each extremity, there is an assay mark, a crown, VR, and 37. A royal crown, Victoria Regina, 1837. Had a crown agent come to this small shop in this first year of Queen Victoria's long reign, check the yardstick for accuracy, and then confirm this by stamping the monarch's seal of authority thereon for everyone to see. My yard is the same length as the imperial standard set in granite on a plinth in Trafalgar Square during 1875, which, incidentally, to get an accurate reading, must be measured at 62 degrees Fahrenheit. Until that time there appears to have been no prototype existing where builders, tradesmen, surveyors and the like could easily verify that their yardsticks were indeed accurate. These Imperial standards were used by pioneers of the Industrial Revolution and builders of the British Empire throughout the world. What chaos would have existed if each builder or engineer had used his own ideas and made up his own standard length for the yard? Impossible, you say. What a ridiculous proposition. Nevertheless, in other fields of life we have exactly that same scenario being now used. I am informed that we now live in a post-modern world. Perhaps, like me, you are not aware of this fact. However, the mindset of post-modernism presents serious challenges, particularly in the realm of biblical truths and faith. Perhaps the term postmodern is new to you. Roger Oakland explains. The modern era was characterized by a time of rational thinking based on factual observation. Many claim the modern era ended in the mid-1900s. The postmodern mindset moves be beyond the rational and the factual to the experiential and the mystical. In other words, in the past it was possible to know right from wrong and black from white. In the postmodern era all things are relative to the beholder. What may be right for you may be wrong for someone else. There is no just such thing as absolute truth. 
the only thing that is absolute is that there is no absolute. We now live in a time in history that is characterized as postmodern. Professors at universities teach students there is no right or wrong. All things are relative. The gospel message to the postmodern mindset is far too dogmatic and arrogant. They say it is necessary to find a more moderate gospel that can be accepted by the masses. That's Roger Oakland's explanation. We have been told that no longer do we need the yardstick of the Word of God. We now live in a time similar to that described in Judges 17 verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The result was disastrous. A turning away from the worship of the true God to the worship of false gods, idolatry and much confusion. When man stops believing in the truth of God's word, his mind is then open to believing anything from Satan, whom the Bible calls the God of this world. The sirens of unbelief, reasonableness and compromise are constantly calling to distract man off the narrow way to life into the broad way that leads to, to destruction. But God's standards do not change, despite what man may think or desire. As Jesus said in Matthew 15 verse 9, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. My mind was drawn back to, back to these thoughts when I attended a funeral service in our local Anglican church. These services may take place any time up to around seven or eight days after the death of the loved one. Nevertheless, the minister says the following or similar words. We commend into thy hands of mercy, most merciful Father, the soul of this our brother departed, and we beseech thine infinite goodness to give us grace to live in thy fear and love and to die in thy favour, and that when the judgment shall come, thou which thou hast committed to thy well-beloved Son, both that this our brother and we may be found acceptable in thy sight. Grant this, O most merciful Father, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our only Saviour, Mediator and Advocate. How utterly reasonable it all seems and how comforting to those left behind. Their loved one further commended to God in sure and certain hope of the resurrection. But how on, and on what biblical grounds are these words spoken? I know of none and think 
that they are a total delusion, cruelly acting as a sop to grieving parents and in fact are a pitiless deception. Where has the soul been awaiting this commendation from a mortal man to a holy and just God? Can such a recommendation to God alter in any way the condition or final destiny of the departed in eternity? Is this not praying for the dead? This is nothing short of shamanism. David Phillips, one time General Secretary of the Church Society, observed that such prayers were far removed from the reformed doctrine of the Church. Sadly, as in so many areas, the Church now seems only able to confuse people at large rather than declare to them the glories of the Gospel. End his quote. The services may also include a poem indicating that the deceased is only in the next room or on a boat which has only slipped over the horizon. This deception is, I believe, mainly the result of erroneous doctrine in some of the ceremonies and creeds of the Anglican and other churches. People are taught that they become believers through infant baptism. The confirmation service corroborates this. It says, Almighty and everlasting and ever-living God, who has vouchsafed to regenerate these thy servants by water and the Holy Ghost, and has given unto them forgiveness of all their sins, strengthen them, we beseech thee, O Lord, with the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, now and forever. Amen. Someone may say, Surely it is only reasonable that all may be commended to God, for are we not already his children through baptism? Let us, let us examine this in the light of Scripture. I am born again, not by baptism, but by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. Here's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish, and without spot. We are not saved by performing any works, no matter how traditional or how righteous they may appear. Titus 3 verse 5, not by works of righteousness which ye have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Romans 3.20 Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Ephesians 2 verse 8 For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. 
Jesus said to his followers, ere he left them, in Matthew 28, in verse 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have enjoined you. The order is simple and plain. It says, go and make disciples. Baptize them. And then, then teach them the doctrines of the Christian faith. Biblical order cannot be changed for the sake of expediency or to fit man's doctrine. If a cult twisted scripture in the manner it is done in some of the churches, those very churches would be eager to point out the error. Repentance must come before baptism. Repentance and a declared belief and trust in God is essential. Acts 2 verses 37 and 38 They said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 8, 36 and 37. The uh, story of Philip and the uh, representative from Ethiopia. What doth hinder me to be baptized? The Ethiopian said. And Philip said, If thou believe... With all thine heart thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then we read, And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. It should also be noted that when we come in repentance and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, we immediately receive the gift of the Holy Ghost into our lives. And Jesus said that he, the Holy Spirit, will abide with you forever. We now look at two main creeds. The Apostles' Creed. We should, of course, remember that the Apostles knew nothing of this creed. It says, from thence, from heaven, he, the Lord Jesus, shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The future hope presented here for all is judgment. I am not aware of anyone in scripture looking forward in anticipation to a resurrection which brings in the judgment of the great white throne. The theme of the Apostles is always one of looking forward joyfully to the coming of Christ for his church. The coming of a bridegroom for his bride. The coming of the bright and morning star. All referred to and summed up as the blessed hope. Read Titus 2.13 
awaiting, it says, awaiting the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We read in Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Jesus told his followers in John 5:24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, into judgment. But it is passed from death unto life. For Paul and his fellow apostles, the hope was life, not judgment and death. He spoke in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we, we which are alive. Note he says, not those which will be alive, but he says, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord as Jesus said that where I am there ye may be also Paul like many today fully expected his blessed Saviour to come soon at any moment to take his church out of this world Scripture speaks of believers falling asleep in Christ and as Scripture affirms they awake in glory in the presence of their Saviour as Paul desired to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. No believer will ever come before the great white throne for judgment. The possessor of eternal life needs not to be judged and indeed cannot be, as to whether everlasting life is to be his or not. Unbelieving man, in his natural state of sin and condemnation, has before him death and judgment. A believer has death and judgment behind him. It was substitutionally borne by Christ at Calvary. He has before him, as we have said, a blessed hope, the coming again of Christ, his appearing without sin unto salvation, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, and as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ once offered, was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him he shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Believers are accepted in Christ, therefore their security can no more be called into question than that of him in whom they are accepted. However, each believer will come before the judgment seat of Christ, something entirely different from the judgment at the great white throne. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians 3, 10-15. But let every man take heed how he buildeth 
thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. This is a time of commendation or otherwise as to how believers have lived out their lives. It is not the judgment which takes place at the great white throne. We should just look briefly at the Athanasian Creed. It states, From thence he, the Lord Jesus, shall come to judge the living and the dead, at whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account of their own works. They shall give account of their own works. And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. That's what the Athanasian Creed says. The confused theology of the Athanasian Creed is a mixture of the final judgment in Revelation 20 and this parable told by our Lord in Matthew 25, 31 to 34. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he shall sit down upon his throne of glory, and all the nations shall be gathered before him, and he shall separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then shall the king say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation, the world's foundation. For I was hungered, and ye gave me eat. I thirsted, and ye gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was ill, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungering, and nourished thee, or thirsting, and gave thee to drink? And when saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? And when saw we thee ill, or in prison, and came to thee? The king answering shall say to them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch ye have done it to one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it to me. Then shall he say also to those on the left, Go from me, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I hungered, and ye gave me not to eat. I thirsted, and ye gave me not to drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. And ye did not clothe me when I was naked, ill and in prison, and ye did not visit me. Then shall they also answer, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungering, or thirsting, or a stranger, or naked, or in prison, or ill, or in prison, and have not ministered to thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say to you, Inasmuch as ye have not done it to one of these least, neither have ye done it to me, and they shall go away into eternal punishment, and the righteous into eternal life. Before we proceed further, let us take a quick look at this parable, and see if it can be applied to a general resurrection, or any other resurrection for that matter. There are three parties in this passage, the sheep, the goats, and these, my brethren. There is no mention of any resurrection at all. Nobody is raised. All parties are not judged. So even if it does, it, so even if it does refer to a resurrection, judgment, it is not a universal one. Because all parties are not judged. Entry into heaven and eternal glory is not and never will be by good works. All here are living. There are no dead. So what is the explanation of this parable? Throughout the Old Testament there are numerous passages referring to the judgment which God will enact on the nations, the Gentiles. Scriptures such as Psalm 2 and verses 8 to 11. Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This event is described in Jude, verses 14 and 15. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. We read in John 1.11 He, Jesus, came unto his own, his brethren. The Gentile nations here are being judged as to their treatment of the Jewish nation. These my brethren, it says, at the second advent on earth. No matter what many say and teach today, the church does not and has not replaced Israel. The Lord will not reject his beloved chosen people forever. 
Read Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to 37, where Israel is confirmed to be the eternal and as eternal as the solar system. The Athanasian Creed appears to interpret the foregoing events in parallel with the judgment of the great white throne. In Revelation 20, 11 to 15, we read, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Note that, I saw the dead. And the books were opened, and the and other book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the dead, death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There will be at least a thousand years between the events in the parable and those of the great white throne. The Athanasian Creed states, one, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Two, all men shall rise again with their bodies. And three, and all shall give account of their own works. Four, and they that have done good shall go into everlasting life. And finally, five, uh, six, uh, they that have done evil into everlasting fire. That's what it says. One, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Two, all men shall rise again with their bodies. Three, and all shall give account of their own works. Four, and they that have done good shall go into everlasting life. And five, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. Now look at the passage in Revelation. One, there are no living mentioned in the passage in Revelation. I saw the dead, small and great. The dead were judged out of those things were written in the books according to their works. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. There are no living mentioned. Secondly, there is no reference to any of those appearing giving an account of their own works. None. Three, they are judged from the books, including the book of life. Four, there is no reference whatsoever of anyone going into everlasting life 
and certainly not on the merit of good works. The Athanasian Creed further states, all men shall rise and be judged. Imagine for a moment, Moses and Elijah, who appeared at the transfiguration with Christ and spoke of Christ's decease. Imagine the apostles, Abraham, who believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Imagine all the Old Testament prophets, Noah. Then we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, John the Baptist, Luke, the physician who wrote the gospel and the book of Acts, Stephen, the martyr who could say just before he was stoned, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of God standing on the right hand of God, and many, many more. In fact, everyone since Adam himself. They say he, all those must appear before the great white throne. That is the teaching of the creed. So where are all these righteous saints now? Scripture clearly states that those who reject Christ in this life are under the wrath of God and condemned already. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3.18 He that believeth on him is not condemned, not judged, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those appearing at the great white throne are those condemned already, under judgment, shown to be already guilty. The trial is over. As soon as their eyelids closed in death on earth, sadly their doom was sealed. All that is to be done is for the sentence to be declared based on the evidence recorded in the books. The sentence cast into the lake of fire and in this respect it would appear from scripture that there are degrees of punishment in hell which may be reflected in the sentence. Nevertheless, it is a place of everlasting torment, totally evil, away from a loving and just God forever. What an awesome and terrible thought. So the yardstick of the word of God is being discarded. We have been warned that this would happen. Second Timothy 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. May God help us to avoid the traditions of men and rely solely on the living word. May we earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Dear listener, perhaps the teaching of two resurrections is foreign to you. Yet Jesus spoke of two, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of damnation. Individual, both in time and character. 
If Jesus speaks of two resurrections, then it is plainly obvious that all will not rise together in one resurrection. For the believer, his resurrection is selective and will be similar in principle to that of our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. He became the firstfruits of them that slept. So what was selective about the resurrection of Christ? As Jesus came down from the mountain of transfiguration with his three disciples, in Mark 9, verses 9 and 10, we read, He charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying which within themselves questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. Now the disciples were familiar with the teaching of a resurrection. So why did they question among themselves what Jesus had said? It was because in these verses the term risen from the dead should read risen from among the dead. The Greek ek ek out from, away from is used. Christ rose from among the dead. He left the dead and rose forth in glorious victory from among them. Our resurrection will be similar in fashion. Paul, when he spoke in Philippines 3.11, he said that I might attain unto the resurrection, and he used the same term, from among the dead. He uses the same term that Christ did. So Christians will arise to meet their Lord in the air from among the dead. And this is the first resurrection. This was the hope that Paul had and looked forward to with joyous anticipation. The time when Christ will come to the air to take his church to be with himself, as he said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Following this first resurrection, we read in Revelation 25, verse 5, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And in verse 6, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. The dead will be resurrected to judgment at the great white throne. The second death, at least a thousand years after the first resurrection. As someone has said, if you are born twice, you die once. But if you are born only once, you die twice. How utterly tragic. And that is why Jesus said, 
ye must be born again.